Thank you for joining. The world is evolving. The world is changing. In an environment where everything can be equally connected, being digital is more crucial than ever before. Digital platforms are now a big part of delivering meaningful experiences to clients, patients, and their families, and ultimately represent their relationship with an organization. Introducing Bayshore's digital experience platform, DX, a platform that applies over 50 years of community healthcare experience, augmented through a design thinking approach to solving problems. It was, and will continue to be, co-designed with patients, their family members, and care providers. Powered by AWS and MuleSoft, the DX platform scales on the cloud, ensuring one's privacy and security, and provides one with access to their data anytime, anywhere, and on the go. DX Platform is engineered to deliver an extensible architecture approach to plug and play with various digital health technologies and service ecosystem partners. DX Platform will be Bayshore's digital launchpad to craft delightful digital experiences and build products that deliver a meaningful and ultra-connected care experience to your loved ones receiving care at the comfort of their own home. Introducing Bayshore Secure Digital Patient Hub, my Bayshore Care, available through a modern and a responsive web interface, along with native mobile apps powered by Bayshore DX platform. My Bayshore Care provides access to care schedules, communicate with your loved one's care team, book virtual visits, receive check-ins and reminder notifications through wearables and smart speakers such as Alexa, Google Home, Apple Watches. Get to know about your feedback and see how your loved one is doing through quick wellness status. With Wellness Hub's inclusion, you can now connect your favorite wellness devices to experience the best connected health solutions offered and access to Bayshore's remote monitoring services. Bayshore's digital experience platform is about convenience for our patients, clients, and families. It's about transparency to information about their care it's about reducing friction with interfaces and interactions. And it's about allowing communication in the manner that is most convenient for them. It's all about providing the best experience for your loved one's care. Our vision is based off five decades of catering to client demands. We believe that listening to customers will empower us to iterate our platform confidently. With a bolstered agile development team, we are positioned to fine-tune products as the winds change. Thank you for joining us today. We're in for an interesting 60 minutes. Uh, it was Andre who told me that my openings tend to be Twitter-based, um, maybe a little bit longer than 280 characters, but uh, I'll try to keep it short and sweet. To guide us through today, um, I would like to uh, welcome Andre Picard. He is one of healthcare's great voices. As most of you know, Andre has worked for the Globe and Mail for many years and has spoken at countless events, including multiple Longwoods events, and has published many books, um, his most recent being Neglected No More, all about the care of our moms, our dads, our brothers, our sisters, and our grandparents as they enter the elder care system in Canada. It's well worth your time. Andre? 
Great, thanks, Matt, uh, for that uh, kind introduction, and welcome everyone to the panel, uh, Digitally Enabled Community Health uh, Care Models. Uh, in healthcare, we talk a lot about our shortcomings, about our failures. We don't often share and celebrate our successes. We need to do that sometimes. And the objective of today's event is pretty simple. We want to share some of these stories in the area of digitally enabled care. You know, COVID-19 has taught us many lessons, good and bad. Uh, the pandemic has also forced us to do some things differently. Uh, the public and practitioners in particular have embraced digital healthcare to a, an amazing degree. Uh, patients and their families have also made it clear that they want care delivered differently at home and in the community, not just in bricks and mortars institutions. So as you heard in the uh, opening video, being digital is more important than ever. And that's the message you want to get out there today. Uh, we also want you to walk away from this event saying, could my organization do something like this? Can we do it better for our patients? Uh, we want you to be inspired and we want you to find new partners. So each of our speakers is going to tell a story for a few minutes, then I'm going to lead a panel discussion. So without further ado, let me introduce our first speaker. Uh, Larry Sylvest is the healthcare sales leader at Amazon Web Services Canada. And uh, Larry, we're going to turn the stage, the virtual stage over to you. I promised everyone I would do a Twitter length introduction, so you only get one sentence. But now you get more time to do your presentation. Sounds great. Thank you very much, Andre. And uh, hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to today's session. I'm going to pull up my slides here for one moment. I, I just want to share at the outset that when I saw that video for the first time of the DX platform from Bayshore, it really uh, it was inspirational. I think uh, many of us, uh, to some of the opening remarks, have been seeking the cross-continuum collaborative care model in a way that was sustainable and uh, addressable by all in the uh, in the healthcare space. And I think uh, the progress that's been made under the auspices of COVID and you know just prior to, and now that we're evolving out of it, I think um, the future is very bright for those of us who have endeavored to seek that sort of outcome for everyone involved. And so I'm just gonna make a few remarks here regarding the value of being digitally enabled. Um, at, at the outset, the first thing I wanna say is that uh, the CEO of Amazon now, who was formerly the CEO of Amazon Web Services, uh, Andy Jassy famously said that there's no compression algorithm for experience. And seeing what Bayshore has accomplished with their, um, with their um, uh, very in-depth experience in care delivery models and using that expertise to apply it to the digital world, I think is inspirational for all of us. Um, there is so much deep subject matter expertise in the clinical realms that needs to be intersected properly with the technology capabilities that are available today. To see the type of innovation that is going on with Bayshore is extremely encouraging. And so where's the value in digitally enabled? I'd say, and it was, mentioned in the video, but it's transparent and frictionless. You really have to understand the stakeholders and attune the services to how they need to interact with the system. And when I say need, that's variable across different constituents. Everyone um, has a different preferred method of engaging. I know using a cell phone for many might be a challenge. My, my dad previously, and before he, he left us, had a real challenge using a cell phone and, and he was in a care home and wanted to interact with his family and other things. And, you know, we ultimately ended up using an Alexa device for him to be able to communicate. And it was, it was 
it was revolutionary for him and his experience in that care model to be able to leverage technology in a way that allowed him to connect a little bit more seamlessly and not be frustrated with trying to find on the screen because his vision was poor and all the other things. I think everyone's very empathetic to the plight of some of these individuals. And so it's really understanding the value of that customer experience. Um, and at AWS, we say that there is part of our mission is to be the world's most customer um, uh, focused company. And Bayshore's mission statement, which I copied for everyone's benefit, you know, echoes that, I think, uh, in a way that is necessary for the best outcomes of everyone involved in applying technology to the clinical use cases um, that we're trying to resolve. The second thing I would say is um, it has to be trusted. Um, many organizations have raised the bar for security in most cases in the digital realm, far beyond what we used to see in the paper world. And I think uh, the way that Bayshore has approached security and the implementation of these technologies, um, you know, with some assistance from ourselves and other partners is uh, incredibly, um, I guess, important because the, the platforms are interconnected. Um, they need to be ubiquitous. They need to be delivered in a way that is accessible, um, but at the same time remain secure so that people will trust these platforms to be used in a variety of different situations. And I think that is um, the second key pillar of digital enable, enablement of care delivery. The third one, and um, I'm sure this will be a part of our Q&A later on, but it's it's more effective. Um, you know, we've, we've had many use cases that people have heard over years. Every time I present at another clinical setting, I have to reiterate, uh, you know, basically what my what my prescriptions are or my, what medical history is and all of the rest. Um, being able to um, consolidate that information in a way that's more effective to be shared amongst the constituents who are in that care team across the system is really, really important to be able to easily get the health status, especially in that circle of care that includes family and our and our elderly ones, et cetera, who need require home, home care is, is really, really important to just ensuring that seamless experience. And, and more importantly, I think to ensure the quality of care is maintained across the system. Um, so it improves the customer experience, giving them better access to content and capability in a more convenient manner, in, thereby increasing system efficiency thereby reducing costs. And lastly, uh, the accessibility and equity of these services is improved for all. Um, there's many use cases that, uh, you know, remote and rural communities, for example, have a really challenging time interacting with the clinical world just due to geographical constraints. And we should know that better than almost any country on the planet, given, you know, a very low population density. Um, and with that, I just want to thank everyone for the time and opportunity to present here and pass it back um, to Andre for the next speaker. Uh, great. Thanks a lot, uh, Larry, for that. Uh, so let me move on to our, our second speaker, which is actually a pair of speakers. Uh, I'll inv uh, invite uh, Elaine Mertens, uh, who is the Vice President of Cancer Programs at Ontario Health Cancer Care Ontario, to join us. Uh, welcome, Elaine. And with her is Judy Linton, the Chief Nursing Executive and Clinical Institutes and Quality Programs Executive at Ontario Health. We were joking before the panel that that, doesn't def that definitely doesn't fit on a business card, but we don't have business cards anymore, so that's okay. So uh, Judy and Elaine, I'll turn the floor Great. over to you. Great. Thanks very much, Andre. So I'm going to start. I, I don't have a lot of slides, so I'm going to sort of uh, give you a bit of an overview of the CareChart program, um, speak a bit, little bit about the service it provides, 
how it works. And when I get to the how it works, I'll start, I'll share some slides. So I wanted to start first by setting the stage for why we have a care chart. So for those of you who may not know, cancer patients who are receiving systemic treatment and radiation treatment will often have symptoms or side effects, also known as toxicities, as a result of the treatment that need to be assessed and managed. And the issues often arise after the cancer clinic has closed for the day. And prior to this program, patients would have to manage at home or until the next day, or they would go to the emergency department. So what is CareChart? CareChart Digital Health, it's a virtual after hours teletriage symptom management program. It provides patients who are undergoing uh, treatment access to an oncology nurse to help manage their symptoms over the phone or online. The goal of the care chart program is really to help manage, uh, to help patients manage their symptoms at home and where possible to avoid unnecessary emergency department visits. The program started out as a pilot at uh, South Lake Regional Cancer Center, and uh, there's been a provincial rollout of the program. It began in October of 2018, and it now is in 74 hospitals across Ontario. Access to an after-hours teletriage symptom uh, management program is really just one uh, piece of an overall strategy to help patients with toxicities manage their symptoms and reduce avoidable ED visits. The program is meant to be for after clinic hours. So that if a patient calls during the day, their call will still be answered. They'll be redirected as appropriate. So they might be redirected back, back to the cancer clinic or uh, to the emergency department, depending on the severity of their symptoms. And then uh, Ontario Health Cancer Care Ontario, we manage the overall contract, but each hospital has their own service agreement with CareChart. So together they, they determine the population that will access this, um, this program. Um, as I've already said, the service is intended really to um, provide support to cancer patients who are undergoing treatment after their treatment center closes for the day. So during regular business hours, patients are instructed to call their clinic and when the center is closed, so in evenings, weekends, and holidays, this is where care, this is when care chart is open. This allows patients to have 24-7 access to a specialized oncology provider. The service is also really intended to help support appropriate use of ED visits. So the, the intent is not to reduce all ED visits. There are there are some situations where it's appropriate for patients to be to be directed to the emergency department. Uh, patients can call and speak with a specialized oncology nurse who completes an assessment and then makes recommendations for care. Uh, and we know through information that we gather that the majority of calls will result in, in the oncology nurse helping the patient manage their symptoms at home. Since 2018, there's now a digital platform that supports the program. And the CareChart digital platform was designed to improve and enhance the patient care delivery. The development of the CareChart app was co-designed with patients, families, and clinicians, and was launched in August of 2021. And to date, approximately 810 patients have registered. So to ensure we meet the needs of patient and family communication preferences, patients can either call a toll-free number that is provided to them, or they can register through this app. Um, now I'm gonna walk you through um, sort of a high-level overview of the process. So if a patient wants to access through telephone, then the program is administered virtually, so by phone, the patient will receive information about the program from their treating hospital or cancer program. If the patient experiences symptoms, then they, they call the number provided. They're then connected to a triage for registration and then transferred to an oncology nurse. 
The nurse then follows provincial uh, guidelines and standards that exist to complete a symptom assessment and then help support management of those symptoms. Um, and then the patient call is documented and this information is sent to the patient's hospital. So uh, the following day, the cancer center can see who of their patients may have accessed this program. They can um, determine whether patients have gone to the ED, does, does follow-up required, and they can follow up to make sure appropriate um, symptom management has occurred. So if the patient chooses the mobile app, um, then the patient still receives the information through the program from the treating hospital or cancer center, but the app allows the patient to register in advance of needing care. The, this step enables the patient to by, bypass the triage and connect directly with the nurse uh, using either the app feature or by calling the toll-free telephone number. The patient can also choose to do a, a symptom assessment before actually requesting a video or telephone call to speak with a nurse. All of the symptom management guides that exist are also loaded into the app. So there's a bit of a resource library that um, patients can access to self-manage their symptoms. And then through the app, the nurse can share recommendations with the patient after they've had a call. The nurse can also monitor symptom scores and follow up with the patient a few hours after their call. Um, patients are also sent a survey through this app and this uh, is, allows them to provide some feedback on their experience using the program. And as with programs, we want to understand what the impact of the program is and is it um, uh, having its intended results. So we know it since the start of the program, almost 60,000 calls have been placed. On average, it takes less than three minutes for the nurse to be connected with the patient. And 80% of patients have not been referred to the ED. The majority of patients have, who were surveyed have really um, positively rated the service. And when asked, many patients have said they would have gone to the ED had they not had access to this program. So I'm gonna turn it over now to Judy, who is going to uh, share a little bit about the personal story about the use of the, uh, of the program, how it helped her and her family, and why this support is really so critical to patients during this time of really high symptom acuity. Thanks, Elaine. So uh, this is a little bit strange for me to be uh, talking about a personal experience. Usually I am on the uh, planning and delivery side of the system, but uh, uh, in uh, April of 2020, um, one of my immediate family members was diagnosed with a brain tumor and uh, right in the middle, right in the first two months of COVID. So you can imagine all of the, the stress of that. Uh, he was going through, he had surgery and, and uh, after his pathology report um, was um, uh, put onto a course of six weeks of concurrent chemo radiation. And about eight days into that course, um, I, I got woken up at 3.30 in the morning and uh, found a very sick and distressed um, uh, person to deal with. And uh, even though I'm a nurse, uh, didn't quite know what to do. I did have the good sense to take his temperature. Uh, he had an elevated temperature. So I remembered that, uh, that Princess Margaret had given us uh, lots of information. And one of the pieces of information was this 24 hour number to call. So I called and I have to say, I was hugely skeptical. I did not think, I thought I was gonna get a recording, but I actually immediately spoke to an oncology nurse. And um, you know, I, I can't tell you how um, comforting that was. Gave her the information. She actually went and consulted with an oncologist and uh, called me back within about five minutes. 
um, and gave me instructions that in fact, I did actually need to take him to the hospital, which was exactly the right thing to do. But it's, um, it's a real eye opener when you are um, part of, of the healthcare system and you have to experience something like this where, uh, you know, we were still in shock from the diagnosis and, and managing the day-to-day -day, uh, change in our lives of, of dealing with, uh, with a, a cancer diagnosis. And, um, and in the middle of the night, you don't know what to do. Doesn't matter who you are. Uh, you don't know what to do. And having a person on the end of the phone who was calm and who could direct me, um, consult with an oncologist, call me right back and, uh, and direct me in, in how to help manage this um, was hugely helpful. So I am, uh, I am a huge fan of this service and um, uh, it's something that demonstrates to me how important uh, virtual care can be. Um, it's not a substitute uh, for, for uh, in-person care, but in the middle of the night or when you cannot get to your practitioner, um, having somebody on the end of the phone or um, on, on uh, a virtual on, on a, uh, a virtual call is, is hugely helpful. So um, uh, that's my story. I could tell you much more, but uh, in the interest of time, I won't. But I just... Uh, I, I want to say how important this is for patients and family members um, 24 hours a day. I'll stop there. Great. Well, thank you very much, uh, Judy and Elaine. We'll come back to you in a, in a bit with some questions. Uh, uh, just to answer a question in the chat, yes, this is a 24-7 service. You alluded to that, but there was a question on that. So just to clarify out loud. So let me, go, without further ado, get to our final speaker. Uh, uh, welcome to the virtual stage, Dr. David Pecora, who's president and CEO of Kingston Health Sciences Centre. Uh, David, the floor is yours. Well, thanks, Andre, and thanks, Matt, for inviting us to be here today, and Bayshore as well. And good afternoon, everyone. Um, what I'd like to do is give you a little bit of a high-level overview of our journey with transformative care models uh, dating back to about 2017 or 2016 up until now, and, and, and how we've evolved and things that we've added and changed and grown. Uh, and it's a real delight to be able to think about all this and put it all together and give sort of a high level overview with lots of little snapshots of uh, some of our findings along the way. So first off, um, you know, there's many whys for why we might wanna do this, but certainly pressure for change around hospital bed capacity is probably the only why that we really need. Um, and, and as in, in all hospitals know, this is the situation that existed prior to the pandemic and has only continued and in many cases been exacerbated by the pandemic. Um, it's not unusual for us to have about the 10th highest rate of hallway healthcare in the province and to have about 20% of our beds occupied by ALC patients who no longer need to receive care inside Kingston Health Sciences, but they're in the middle of a system gridlock and their preferred destination is full. So um, what difference does that make to us? Well, lots of difference, but maybe the most worrisome one is the limit on our ability to deliver the regional tertiary services that the entire region depends on. Um, and in particular, it shows up in canceled surgeries and delayed surgeries, um, and maybe most notable in complex cancer, cardiac and neurosurgery. And so, you know, hospitals are trying lots of ways to mitigate these problems. And fortunately, we've benefited from support from the ministry in Ontario Health uh, we've been designated to have agency status to directly contract uh, transitional care and home care services.
practices. And that has really broadened our scope and scale of ability to deal with. It has not eliminated ALC patients. Um, we still have 80 to 100 there today. Wave six has been worse than ever for ALC. But I can't imagine what it would be like if we hadn't taken the steps I'm going to talk about right now. So first of all, our very our first uh, toe in the water, if you will, with Bayshore and our local retirement home that had capacity and interest was to create a transitional care unit. We started out with funding for a 10-bed unit back in 2017. And the goal was to provide 45 up to 60 days of restorative therapies that would you know, include nursing, personal care support, education, the variety of services that patients might need and might be over and above what local home care could provide in some instances. And a, a great opportunity came up along the way that the retirement home offered, they were having difficulty managing some of the patients who've got early dementia and cognitive disorder. And so they offered to create a secure behavioral support unit. And those facilities are in short supply in our region. And this has been a real asset going forward for us. And here's just a snapshot of some of the outcomes that we're seeing. Um, 6,000 days of hospital beds uh, freed up on a yearly basis to allow us to provide the services in hospital that we're meant to be. Um, at least 600 patients in the last five years. Our average length of stay is good at 38 days. And um, you know, close to half of these patients go home without the need for any additional home care support. Uh, it, it's been a victim of its success and it's continued to grow and outstrip the available funding. And I thank you to the Ministry of Ontario Health for trying to pay attention to this. Uh, we've now expanded up to 80 beds and the retirement home has offered the capacity to double that if the need it should arise. And it certainly had a positive effect, but has not completely eliminated ALC occupancy. And I think it's helped to keep our surgical program afloat in the last two years, especially. So that, the uh, transitional care unit was the first step. The next step was the at-home program and everybody would like to have care at home whenever care at home is possible. We started this in 2019, again with Bayshore. And this is a partnership with Home and Community Care Support Services. Uh, referrals go to them first and they have the chance to triage and accept patients first. And our role with the at-home program is to fill the gaps for patients who either don't qualify or where there's capacity issues at home care to try to fill out the volume, the scope and scale of services that might be required. The goal is to provide up to 16 weeks of care in the home. And beyond 16 weeks, we try to revert back to home and community care whenever possible. And we try to create individual care plans that are tailored to the needs of the patient and the family. We try not to limit that by a type of service. Um, and having only one service provider has made scheduling a lot easier for patients who need multiple uh, services. And the patients really, really appreciate that. And what I'm hearing that the providers like this, uh, more of a wraparound care model as well. So some initial high level outcomes from our at home, Andre, uh, treated about 500 patients in the Southeast so far. Um, we've noted a 56% decrease in the average number of days spent in hospital by these people. 36% reduction in bounce backs, either eMERGE visits or readmissions. Uh, a number of these patients did not have a family doctor. Now 4% um, of those were unattached and now they have been attached to a family doctor in the course of this program, which I think was an unanticipated uh, benefit, but it's certainly a very positive one. 
And we try to make sure that the majority of patients are able to connect with their primary care provider within a week of leaving hospital while they're in the program. And we're also working to build this into our OHT strategy. We have two partner hospitals in the region that we've extended the agency status uh, to, and that's been certainly beneficial for all of us. It helps with our flow when their flow is better. And we've also uh, more recently involved one family health team who can direct admit um, through the Bayshore program. So then we got into more and more patient monitoring. And of course that's driven by the pandemic. And one of the people in the chat was asking for patient input. And you know this is as good as it's gonna get in a live session, but this is Herbert and we'll come back to him in a minute. He was one of the first patients enrolled in one of our studies. So we have four programs and no surprise, this has been accelerated by the pandemic with more virtual care and digitally enabled care. And also in response to requests from patients and families, especially ones who live at a, a remote and rural location. And we, we cover a very, very large geographic area in the Southeast. So we have four programs, a post-operative one, which is we participated in a multi-center national trial led out of McMaster for remote monitoring and virtual care after surgery. I'll speak briefly about that. We've had chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or COPD and palliative care programs running for about three years. And I'll give some quick highlights on those, which are quite similar really. And then most recently, um, we've got started on a, on a post-discharge program for COVID positive patients. And the early experience with that is favorable, but we don't have valid statistics on it yet. So I'm not gonna to say too much about the remote uh, monitoring. Uh, this was a formal uh, academic study. It was intentionally over-engineered with all kinds of data. And, um, and you can read about it if you're interested in the British Medical Journal as September, 2021, which is where it was published. Uh, but just to say that this is a virtual care model, we use the uh, Connected Health by Cloud DX. And some of the um, deliverables in this were daily patient surveys, remote monitoring with vital signs, blood pressure, heart rate, respiratory rate, O2 saturation, temperature and weight. And we had a, a command center with 24 seven nursing availability for contact and physicians on call as needed. And uh, this was Herbert's comment about how the family appreciated his um, engagement and participation in that program uh, because he had a, his mother who was unable to visit him during the pandemic um, really appreciated the fact that she could stay connected and know that he was connected, even though she wasn't able to visit him. And I would say this program was rolling in uh, June, July of, of wave one. So here are some of the, uh, the high-level outcomes from that. Um, a reduction in unplanned visits, as you might expect. Um, one of the most surprising findings was the ability of this program to detect medication errors, which are much with a much higher rate of reliability, 30% for virtual care and 6% for the standard groups. Not that there were more errors in the virtual care patients, but rather they were being picked up and not missed. Um, uh, interestingly, there was better pain management, a very high patient satisfaction, uh, 96%. And not surprisingly, we also had lots of learnings about the challenges with uh, connectivity with some people who have poor internet access, uh, family tech support for some people who aren't all that tech savvy, and um, is more difficult for patients lacking a primary care provider. Uh, we're grateful for uh, Ontario Health who provided ongoing 
funding for a, somewhat of a stripped down model of this to keep it going. And the research is continuing with new proposals uh, for academic study of this type of care. And um, patient, as I mentioned, patient satisfaction is high, but staff satisfaction as well. And you can see a comment here from one of our nurse providers in the um, command center. Uh, this was something that was really gratifying to folks. So quick comments about our COPD and palliative care programs. I don't think there'll be too many surprises here. Uh, the COPD program, we've in, uh, partnered with a small, uh, more rural hospital in Napanee, the Lennox and Addington Hospital, <clears throat> with the expected reductions in visits to hospital and complications. And the palliative care program, of course, was designed to try to keep patients at home, minimize visits back to the hospital, and it's had a, a positive effect there as well. And finally, just a little bit about the design of our COVID study. There's two streams. One is a standalone for monitoring these post-COVID um, post-discharge patients. And the other is an add-on to the restorative care program. And we'll see how this goes. Hopefully we're close enough to the end of the pandemic that we're going to have to re-engineer this to um, different care paths. Um, and I'm sure there'll be lots of interest and energy in doing that. So in terms of where we might be thinking for the future, um, we obviously want to continue to integrate this type of care model in every dimension into the work we do with the Fond Athletics and Addington Ontario Health Team um, and to collaborate with OHT partners in more remote monitoring applications, um, continue to use technology wherever it makes sense to drive system change, um, try to get into partnerships with primary care in terms of sharing that uh, remote monitoring activity, and then finally look at new models. And one of the ones um, that we'd like to see that makes sense to us because of what we're doing right now would be to adapt this into our ongoing congestive heart failure management program. So Andre, I will stop there. Great, thank you uh, for that. Uh, it's, you've generated a lot of questions, so uh, people are very interested in this topic. So I'm gonna weed right into them. Uh, I'll put my questions aside for now because a few technical questions I'll get out of the way uh, and I'll ask other the, the other panelists put their mics and their their cameras on we'll bring the whole panel on and I think I'll, I'll start with Elaine if I could uh, somebody's asking can you tell us a little bit about who are these nurses are they oncology nurses do they just work in a call center or are they also at the bedside so just a little bit who's this team giving this good advice sure so I'll start and maybe ask Sherry to to provide more but they are oncology trained nurses so these are not specifically so I think someone made a comment about PMH nurses. So um, just so that we're clear, all the, all the hospitals that offer the program offer information to the patients about calling the program. And so I think when Judy was referencing PMH, the PMH is the program that gave her the information. So in the middle of the night, she called a number, which I think they're, they're probably at home. The nurses are at home answering the call. And they are, um, I think they come from across the province. I don't think they're necessarily um, from a specific center, but I'll ask Sherry to maybe comment on sort of the, the geographic locations of the nurses, but they're, they definitely all are oncology trained. And when you're right, Elaine, they're all across the province. They're not just in, in one catchment area, especially since we're um, helping 74 hospitals, it's good to have nurses with, within each region. And uh, we do not take from the hospital staffing pool. Um, we recruit independently and uh, done that quite well. Thank you. 
Great, thanks, uh, Sherry Nutrition, for weighing in. And there was another question about that. Are you taking away from the pool? Uh, people were worried about that. So you killed two birds with one stone there. Uh, David, maybe I'll, I'll flip over to you because a couple of questions for you. One again is about staffing. How do you make sure these programs don't take away from hospital staffing? We know staffing's probably the number one issue in healthcare today. How do you get that balance right? Yes, well, that might be a, a question that uh, Anita and Karen can answer better than me. It's obviously something that we are concerned about. Um, we don't want to see our nurses or anyone else just moving to a different place and, um, and compromising the care in any part of the system. We'd like to think that this is adding capacity to the system and will create opportunities to bring more healthcare providers into the system. But, you know, it'd be interesting to hear a comment from Bayshore on that one, Andre. And while I have you, David, another fairly technical question. People are asking, what's the uptake for, say, the remote monitoring program? Do people like this? Are they signing up or are they reluctant? Yeah, no, it seems to be very popular. Um, like everything, it's not for everybody. And during um, certain types of virtual care, uh, if people don't have a reliable cell phone or internet access, it doesn't work so well. There's some people who just would rather come for an in-person visit whenever that, that's possible. But it, it overall, I'd say it, it definitely adds another very valued dimension to care. And Larry, I'll use that as a jumping off point to, to go back to you. Uh, the equity question, people are worried, you know, not everybody has a cell phone, not everybody has high-speed internet. Uh, some people are leery of technology. How, how do we make sure these programs are, are equitable, that they're just not for the, the privileged? Yeah, I'd say that it is a... Um... It is a focus area for us. We've actually got a project that we have, um, it's in the midst of being launched to deliver ubiquitous access to internet using low earth orbit satellites. Um, very interesting. And its coverage model would um, um, be accessible by over 90% of the Canadian population over the course of time is all I can say right now. Uh, so I think there's um, multiple efforts from the technology side to ensure that better access to the internet or connectivity in general is on its way. Um, it's a pursuit of ours. And on that same issue, uh, there's this stereotype, uh, older people don't like using technology, they're scared of it. In your experience, is that true? And I'll state my bias, having had a lot of uh, chats online with uh, 90 and 100 year olds uh, in the last year. Is, is that true, that stereotype that older people uh, don't embrace this? I think I gave a small snippet of my personal experience with my father who was having a real challenge using a cell phone and felt that talking to an Alexa device was much easier for him and allowed him to maintain connections. I think in short, it's uh, important to consider multiple methods of interaction with technology in a way that suits the consumer experience and their preference. And so it's not a one and done discussion. Uh, everything from getting a text message on your cell phone to be able to talk to a device to doing real-time interactive video and chat. I think all facets of technology have to be tailored to that end user experience. And um, yeah, that's, I wouldn't want to speak on behalf of it. You have to try and address them all. Great. And Elaine, I'll jump back to you if I can. Now, this is a question I had. It's also in the chat. Can this care chart model, can it, can it apply to other clinical areas besides cancer? It's not just cancer patients who have questions in the middle of the night. Is this something yeah. we should be doing more broadly? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a great question. There is a pilot in the North um, uh, working with the pilot care population. So I think it's definitely a scalable 
um, program. It could it could be. I mean, it's virtual. And uh, just to add to the question about equity, I think this is why it's also important to think about the use of a telephone. So not everyone will have good internet access and be able to use video. So we need to remember that having access to telephone and doing it that way is also critical. And how is this different from, say, an 811? You know, some places have telemedicine, you call in 811. Is this program, it's specific for cancer patients, so I guess a little more specialized is the difference. Yeah, so there is a specialty training, but they also have the ability to be able to call the oncologist that's on call for that patient. So that is, I think, also an added benefit for this scenario is that they the nurse is the first, the first point of contact, but if needed, can call the backup, the person that's on call um, to get additional information. Great. Andre, uh, can, I, can, I, Andre, can yeah. I just weigh in on that? If, yeah, if you yeah, jump mind? in. I, yeah. You know, just, you know, when I experienced this and, and I phoned, I, I, I genuinely thought, first of all, that I was going to get a recording and I was going to have somebody call me back in an hour. That's not what happened. I immediately spoke to an oncology nurse. Um, when you call other, you know, telemedicine telehealth, you, you know, you, you know, frequently you get told, you know, it's, it's difficult for people to diagnose and to manage over the telephone when they don't know the details. And then they tell you to go to the emergency department. That's not what this is. This is very specialized and, and can, and tells you, you know, I didn't, I had no idea if I needed to go to the emergency department. I didn't want to go to the emergency department at three 30 in the morning, I can assure you, but you know, got, you know, and, and, you know, and as a, as a nurse, I was kind of like, well, maybe just go back to bed and you'll feel better in the morning. Uh, but in fact, that would have been absolutely the wrong thing to do. And, and I got that advice and I got it immediately. That's the difference. Okay, great. Uh, David, I'll, Jump back to you. Uh, when we talk about healthcare, we always talk about money. So there's a couple of questions here. People want to know more about the funding model. Who's paying for this? Uh, especially in a siloed system, there's a little bit of skepticism about this again. Yeah, so on the uh, transitional care unit program, there is a copay in retirement homes. And fortunately, um, the Ministry on Charity Health have, have been covering that during the pandemic. And I think this will be the value-based care or cost-benefit analysis that needs to be done further is how much of this, you know, it, it's a good service, it works well, and how much do we invest in that? Um, how much do we invest in the so-called traditional home care? And what's the right balance? I don't think it's either or. Um, when it comes to the PBC RAM study, um, that was early in the pandemic and we were able to redeploy nurses uh, to, to man the call center. Um, be a little trickier now because we don't have that option. And so it would, it would be more expensive to do. And, and, and that's one of the reasons why our, our, the model we're using now is a, a lot more efficient, I'll say. Great. Uh, Larry, I have one for you because it has the word algorithm in it. I'm not sure what that means, so I'm just going to ask you. Uh, people want to know, is, is there an algorithm that tells us when it's appropriate to have digital health, when it's appropriate to have in-person? Uh, how do you uh, incorporate the uh, patient experience into the algorithm? Yeah. Well, that's a very uh, challenging question to answer. What I would say is that the intersection of artificial intelligence and algorithms to assess a patient condition and attempt to give what I would call recommendations to the clinical audience is something that is very contentious. And I know Health Canada and other regulatory bodies have been struggling with that very question. So I think it's, uh, it's best framed in that um, advice could be recommended based on the information provided as compared to what the clinical practice guidelines might say, but it still has to be a clinician who is the adjudicator of the final assessment and approach. 
maybe I'll ask you separately offline what an algorithm is, is some other day. <laughs> <laughs> so, Elaine, I'm going to come back to you. You talked about this a bit, but people are asking more pointedly, does the oncology nurse have access to the person's records when they call in? Uh, so um, I think for the most part, the, the nurse does not have access, but I think there are situations where the hospital has a, a, a different relationship with um, the care chart program where the potentially the nurse does have access. And I think maybe Sherry has more detail on that. So um, for, some, for some centers, we do have um, patient, remote patient access to their um, to their medical health record. And we also have access to uh, Clinical Connect with some of our partnering hospitals. But one of the things the hospitals do provide us with is a detailed information sheet with the patients. And, you know, one of the things that we find when patients are calling in, they're very knowledgeable about what treatment they're on, when they've had their last treatment and their diagnosis. So that also helps as well. Um, I don't know the sensory technology question for palliative care, if that was if that was in reference to the question when, when Lane brought up uh, palliative care. So I was, sorry, Andre, I just thought I would uh, say, no, we don't use sentry technologies. We've built um, our palliative care virtual program on our DX platform, similar to our care chart oncology program. Great. And I'll remind people just a couple of minutes left. If you still have time to throw in a question, if you want, I'll try and ask as many as possible. Uh, it's another one. Uh, maybe I'll send this uh, David's way again. It's about money, so I'll put it to the CEO. Uh, did these programs actually save money, or are you just uh, shifting and then filling the beds with other things? Uh, I guess is the question. Well, that's kind of the story of the Canadian healthcare system, isn't it, Andre? I mean, <laughs> yeah. if we empty a bed, we're going to fill it. Um, and so, you know, the way things are funded in Ontario. Um, if it gets filled with patients whose care type is funded through the global budget, then, um, you know, it may, may be adding cost. If it's allowing us to do patients who have volume-based funding activity, cancer patients, for example, um, then, you know, there's probably, a, well, there's a huge benefit to patient care and quality, but financially, we don't suffer from doing that either. So, I think the answer is it, it depends, um, but it is more efficient. And so it ought to be the right thing to do. And I guess if we decide it's the right thing to do, then the funding models need to catch up to the way we provide service. Okay. Uh, here's the other questions for all the panelists, but I think uh, maybe I'll, well, I'll ask it and I'll see who wants to answer. Uh, so is, the question is uh, someone requiring uh, ongoing home care services, uh, do you, can, can you or do you engage their providers in these virtual care episodes to, to make the care more seamless? So maybe uh, Elaine, I don't know if you can tackle that one. Do you, do you bring in the home care nurses into this uh, at all? So it's my understanding that when the patient calls to speak to the, 20, the after hours nurse, that there may be uh, guidance given to the patient at that time to connect with the home care service if they're engaged with the home care service. So I think I see Sherry nodding. I think that that's. And we'll, we'll also get calls from the community home care nurses um, when they're visiting uh, the client to ask for ask us further for our advice as well. So we do support the community nurse in the home when they're visiting their, their patients too. We do finally get those calls, but we always redirect them back to their home care provider. Um, if they're needing in-person care. 
Okay. And uh, I, I asked this question earlier of Judy, so I think I'll, I'll re-ask it for Larry because being asked by several people in different ways. Uh, can we do this for other things? Uh, for example, heart failure patients and uh, not just cancer patients, is this model expandable across the, the board? I don't think there's any limitations from a technological standpoint. I would refer back to the, the clinical members of the panel for the applicability in various clinical use cases. But certainly from a technological standpoint, remote patient monitoring is something that is very pervasive across the, the, the vendors who actually provide some of those tools in the field. And certainly on the back end where the computing and other tools are aggregated in the way that Bayshore has done, can I think it's certainly feasible to cover multiple use cases. And I think, Judy, you answered that one earlier, so I won't uh, bother you again. I, I want to ask each of you, we've focused on your programs, that I'd like to hear from each of you, wh what do you want to do next? What are you not doing that you'd like to expand to uh, uh, using these models? Uh, uh, maybe start again with Elaine. What, where else can we go in cancer care with this approach? Uh, that's a good question. I think that there's always opportunities, and so I'll... I'll, I'll speak to like, there's the cancer surgery population, but if you're gonna expand it to cancer surgery patients, you might as well it, include the broader population of, of surgical patients. Um, palliative care is also um, something within the cancer programs portfolio, even though it's not for just cancer patients. I think if the pilot in the North is successful, it would be amazing to be able to, again, roll that out provincially. Um, so I think that it's limitless, the opportunities for this. Judy, do you want to weigh in on that one? Oh, I would love to. <laughs> uh, so, you know, there are so many opportunities here. Uh, you know, I'll just, um, you know, a couple of things Ontario Health is working on now. I'm, I'm putting my Ontario Health hat on, not my not my family member hat. Um, you know, we we have, we're developing guidelines for virtual care. So yeah, kind of algorithms, uh, Andre, um, you know, as to when is, when is virtual care appropriate um, that there's that's building on some on some initial work that was done by Cancer Care Ontario and is now being done more broadly. Um, I'll just talk about heart failure for a minute as well. We are just about to embark on uh, a heart failure project that will involve um, uh, five Ontario health teams and hospitals and others working together in partnership. And I see that as a huge opportunity. I and, mean, you know, it doesn't matter who you are in the middle of the night, if, if your family member has heart failure or cancer, or they've had a stroke or whatever, uh, and you're caring for them at home, the ability, uh, you know, to, to get someone on the end of the phone or virtually um, is hugely beneficial. And so this is so scalable um, for, for everything, really. Yeah, and I think the difference is that it's so specialized. The complaint with the telemedicine lines is always 100% of the time go to the ER. So it, you might as well skip that step. So, uh, David, uh, what would you like to do? Uh, what other areas would you like to get into in digitally enabled care as a hospital? Well, I think the example that Judy just gave with congestive failure is one, is one that we'd like to see. And <clears throat> we're certainly bringing these discussions very actively to the leadership team and our Ontario health team to try to create, you know, bring this into the system and figure out where and how it best fits in the system. And, um, you know, one of the areas where we explored that a little bit is to offer our, um, the at-home program to one of our local family health teams. We're kind of using that as a test case to see how that might show up with an Ontario health team model. 
Well, no, I want to ask that the Ontario Health themes, that's the idea to have more yeah. movement across uh, uh, the sectors. Is that, does this lend itself well to that OHT model? Well, we would like to think that if, if a family health team has access to this kind of care, um, you know, so-called wrapping it around the patient, that um, their care will be more efficient, they'll have better, quicker access, as Judy has talked about, and there'll be less pressure on them just to go to the ER as the default. And, um, and we think it's one of the enablers to get patients connected to a primary care provider. Larry, uh, big picture again, where do you see digitally enabled care go? Uh, where does it need to go? Uh, we want to follow our customers where they're going. And uh, one of the things that we announced last year was a health equity program to advance um, advance these endeavors globally. We put $40 million towards anyone who wants to bring us a use case that helps improve the equity of care. Uh, and I think that resonates with what a lot of people are talking about here today. It's come up in several of the questions that have uh, been addressed already. Um, we are very passionate about improving that equitable access. And uh, we are not healthcare providers, but we really want to support those who are and who have innovative programs that can scale. And can you give an example of something beyond uh, just providing better internet service? What, what kind of things can you do to improve equity? Yeah, so there is a, um, I can't mention the name, unfortunately, but we, we do have an Indigenous group in Australia that is actually improving uh, access to care by using a Canadian technology company um, to uh, deliver health service in remote areas, believe it or not. Um, so I can't say much more about it at this time, but uh, watch this space, I guess is what I would say, Andre. Okay. Uh, Judy, this is a fairly technical question. I'll, I'll send it to you with your Ontario Health hat. Some, someone's asking, when will the Ontario Health Guidelines for Virtual Care be released? Um, <laughs> I do not know the answer to that, to be perfectly honest. So um, still a bit of a work in progress. And as I say, building off the, the work done in, in cancer, but uh, uh, you know, certainly when they are, when we do release something, it would be broadly released and available to everybody. So uh, stay tuned. Okay. And maybe uh, I'll throw this, this is a tough one. I'll throw it to David again. Someone's asking, you know, where's, where's the vision for all these things to fit together? Uh, they're worried that we're just building more one-offs and more silos on, on top of the existing silos. Do you see it fitting together? Well, I think that's a great point. Um, you know, one of the things that we've done with virtual care, and we've got a broad number of different programs whereby, you know, in our instance, specialists can provide care to patients. And we've, we very quickly found out that we could um, roll up and institute these services, you know, in two or three weeks. And now we've spent uh, two and a half years figuring out when to use them and when not to use them and how they work best. So I think there's still a lot to learn. It's great to have these uh, technology options to, uh, to figure out where they fit and where they don't fit. So it's a really good point. I mean, another example of this, Andre, is... We have a, um, a partnership with a portable MRI up in Moose Factory Hospital, Winnebago, um, to provide remote access uh, MRI services up there. It's part of a research study to figure out what difference it makes to the care they can provide up there and how many of their patients they have to fly back and forth to Kingston to get an MRI. And Judy, maybe you want to weigh in on that. Where's, where's the vision for fitting this all together at Ontario Health? 
Well, I, I think that's why Ontario Health exists. And, uh, you know, I, it's interesting because, uh, you know, the heart failure project that I talked about is a real example of how Ontario Health is coming together to try and improve the system so that it brings together uh, the, the core health um, um, agency that has just become part of Ontario Health as of December. It brings together our population health and value-based health systems portfolio, which holds the, the virtual and digital um, portfolio. The clinical sits um, under, under my portfolio along with Dr. Chris Simpson. So it really brings together, and digital obviously, uh, really brings together all of those pieces to try and, and do something that makes a difference for patients. Um, heart failure is something where patients end up spending way too long in hospital, and this is a program that will hopefully keep them out of hospital and being able to get care at home um, in, in using, among other things, digital technology. So, uh, you know, that I, I see that as a as a huge part of our role at Ontario Health. Great. Now, I said at the outset we wanted to connect people. We wanted them to get ideas, to have new connections. And we have a question on that. How can we get in touch with all of you, uh, with Larry and others, uh, for partnerships? And I think I'm going to throw to Karen, bring Karen Fisher on. I think she can answer that. And maybe we'll put in the chat some, some uh, connection uh, emails and numbers as well. If you want to jump in there, Karen. Yes, thanks so much, Andre. We'd be very happy to ensure that people have access to uh, some of the systems and partners that have helped make many of these uh, programs of care successful. Great. I, I think I'm looking at my watch. Uh, we like to end very uh, punctually in these uh, Longwoods talks. So I'm going to call on Matt to, to join us and, and say a, a thank you. And I'll thank the panelists myself and thank the sponsor Bayshore for, for this really interesting discussion. And especially thank you to the audience, which came out in uh, very large numbers today. Thanks.